Philippians chapter 4 is where we will start our reading. We'll read chapter 4, verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 9. Philippians 4, 1. The Bible says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, and I implore Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. The title of the message this morning is Immunity Against Disunity. An immunity against disunity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer today. Father, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for uh, your church. Thank you for these faithful folks, Lord. We know that uh, it is a hot day today. Thank you. And it's not in the normal spot we're going to worship, Lord. We pray that you would uh, fill me with your spirit just the same. And I pray that I would say the words that you want me to say, and that your word would take root in the hearts of those here today, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In 1814, there was an author. His name was Ivan Krymov. He wrote a short fable that was entitled The Inquisitive Man. Uh, this man in the fable had just returned from a nature museum. And he's telling his friend all about what he saw in this museum. He's telling him all about the wonderful things that he saw there. He describes in great detail the insects, the flies, the butterflies, the cockroaches, the beetles. And his friend asks if he saw the greatest exhibit at the museum. And he asks him, did you see the elephant that was there? And his friend, the, the, the man replies that, no, I, I did not see the elephant. And so the idiom that we are so often familiar with, the elephant in the room, was born. How many of y'all have ever known about the elephant in the room? Anybody like that? Of course. We're all familiar with situations like this, whether it's a family gathering or a friend that is become not a friend through some circumstances, or you see somebody that you haven't seen in a long time, for whatever reason, the relationship that was once there is no longer the same as it once was. There is an elephant in the room. In our text this morning, Paul is about to address an elephant in the room. He, as we read in verse number two, he is talking about a little feud between two women in this Philippian church, Euodia and Syntyche. You remember, though, that in the early first century, there was no internet. There was no postal service. That was a one or two day priority. There was no email. There was no vehicles. There was no electricity. Paul, at this time, was about 500 miles away from this church. 
about it, 500 miles away. Can you imagine if you had an argument with somebody and all of a sudden the next thing you know, everybody around you knows about it? You get in an argument with your husband or wife or somebody else and all of a sudden people are talking about it all over Facebook, right? Or you make so you see those passive-aggressive tweets or passive-aggressive posts on Facebook. Uh, wouldn't you, wouldn't you uh, be a little bit perturbed? Wouldn't you be a little bit disunified with that person? Would your relationship not be the same? Paul is addressing the very same situation that you and I so often uh, are confronted with in our lives. Because we're human. And Paul is specifically addressing this elephant because it endangers the life of the Philippian church. The church is no longer focused on the mission. The church is no longer focused on the gospel. The church is no longer focused on what really matters. Why? Because this little feud between two women or two members of the church had gotten so out of control that every time they went to church, they could not help but talk about, hey, did you hear about Yodia? Did you hear about Sintiki? Did you see where she was sitting today? Did you see where she was headed to after church today? Have you heard the, the, the gossip, the latest thing about these two ladies? You see, the gospel had taken a back seat to what the gossip had taken a front seat to in this church. This disunity was causing a great division in the Philippian church. So much so that the gospel was not getting out, people were not getting fed, People were not being attended to. This was not a healthy church at this point because of this elephant in the room. So how do we prevent this? How do we, how do we navigate a strained or broken relationship? Do we just cut them off? Do we simply think for ourselves, well, I don't like this person in the church, so I'm going to go down the street to the next church and run away from the problem, as is often the case in Jacksonville, because you know as well as I do that there are so many churches in our city. There are so many scores and scores and scores of Baptist churches in Jacksonville that would not exist, except for the reason that somebody got mad at somebody else and decided to go start another church. My friends this morning, that is no way to resolve a conflict. You do not resolve an argument or a strained relationship by running away from your problems. You face your problems head on, even though it might be uncomfortable, even though it might be the least thing in the world that you ever want to do. We must approach and confront and rid our church of any strained relationships, disunity, or division from the gospel. So how do we do this? How do we gain an immunity? from disunity. Well, the first thing I see is this. We must approach disunity with love. We must approach disunity with love. Look at verse number one. Verse number one, chapter four says, Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. You know, verse one really could be the last verse of chapter three, but uh, as it was, the translators thought that, well, maybe verse one fits better into chapter four, so they divide it right there. But regardless of where the paragraph actually ends, it is important to note that before Paul launches into this admonition to these two women, that he first acknowledges the great joy that this church gives to him. Look at the specific language that he uses. The first word that he uses is this. Therefore, my beloved, beloved, 
We don't use that word too often anymore, do we? We use this word mainly for our spouses, perhaps our children. Uh, but to use the word beloved to, to, to describe a friend of ours is a little bit more unusual today. But he says he describes his church as his beloved. This is the word that means selfless, altruistic, sacrificial love. This is agapetoi, for those of you that are my Greek uh, scholars here. Agape. We may have seen some organizations around Jacksonville and nonprofits that are named agape. This is that same word. A selfless, uh, the same love that Christ has for us. Selfless, altruistic, sacrificial. Paul expresses the same love to the Philippian church using this word. The next word that we see is this, my love, and long for. Long for, brethren. You ever long for somebody? You ever long for maybe a, your husband or wife when you were far away from them for an extended period of time? Maybe when you were dating, uh, when you were, when you were courting, or when you were going out with your fiance, you can remember longing for your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You couldn't wait for the next time that you saw them. You couldn't wait for the next time that you got to do something with them together. You longed for them. Those of us that are, have been in the Navy or in active duty right now, you long for your spouse when you're away from them. Paul is saying right here, I wish I was there with you right now so I could address this issue face Long for, he longed for, he longed to be with them. He addressed them by beloved, he addressed them as his longed for, but he also addressed them by brethren. Brethren. These were Paul's spiritual family. He didn't regard the church as really friends or acquaintances. He targeted them and he regarded them as his family. Can I encourage us this morning, church, that if you do not regard your church as a family, to start doing that. The church is not just another corporate entity that you attend. It is not just a social gathering of club that you participate in. It is not just another company. It is not another nonprofit. It is not another charitable organization. The, the church is meant to be a family. And I know some of you are new to this. But Paul uses this paragraph. He begins to uh, to pave the way, so to speak, because he's getting ready to, to face some confrontation. But he's preparing them by saying, you are my family. Nothing will change that. And then finally, he, re he references them as this, my joy and crown. My joy and crown. You know, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he, he says that every time that Paul thinks about them, they bring him joy. You turn back in one, one page over there, chapter 1, verse number 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always, every prayer of mine, make a request for you all with joy. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, every time I think about you, it brings a smile to my face. Is there anybody like that in your life? Every time you think about this person, you just can't help but smile because of the joy that they give you. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's your, your, your kids, your grandchildren, every time you think about this person, it just brings a smile to your face. Paul is saying that every time he thinks about the Philippian church, it brings a smile to his face. They were also his crown. They were prized by Paul. They were the fruit of the gospel that he saw when he planted this church in Philippi several years earlier. In other words, they were Paul's trophy. They were the fruit of his efforts. 
before this. Paul went to the city of Philippi. He planted this church. He began building relationships with all these people. Perhaps he even won the audience to to the Lord when he was there. These were not strangers to Paul. He knew every single one of them, and they were his ultimate treasure. If Paul felt this way about the Philippian church, how do we feel about our own church family? How do we feel about those of us that are around us that are attending church with us every single week? Have you talked to anybody besides your immediate family at church? Do you know people at church that you not used to know? Do you have you formed relationships? Have you made new friendships since being at Hope Church? Do we regard our church as not just a club, but do we regard our church as a church family? Because I'm going to tell you something. You will conflict with somebody at this church eventually. It's going to happen. This church is made up of imperfect people, and eventually somebody's going to rub you the wrong way. Somebody's going to make you mad. Somebody's going to sit in your seat or somebody's going to take your parking space one week and you're going to get irritated and you cannot sit next to that person because they did you wrong with something. Maybe it's even a business transaction. Maybe you bought something or sold something to somebody that's in the same congregation. And then you did some more research and you found out this person ripped me off. They sold something to me that was worth far less than what they sold it to me for. And now you have an elephant in how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to deal with the conflict? Paul gives us a tremendous example here. And he first approaches them in love. They are his beloved, his longed for, his brethren. Nothing is going to change between me and you because we have a little argument because you are my family. Paul addresses this disunity with love. But the second thing that I see in this passage is this. We will cure disunity through gospel living. We will cure disunity through gospel living. It's interesting because he addresses this issue in chapter 4. The, the, the book of Philippians is not very long. It is four chapters, but Paul does not address this issue head on first. And he does not use any doctrinal language about this, which is interesting. So we know that because of the lateness in the actual epistle that he addresses it, and because we know that he gave no specific correction to these women, we know that it was not a doctrinal issue. This was just your run-of-the-mill sack. This was a disagreement about something that really didn't ultimately matter in the grand scheme of things. He put in verse number two. I implore you, and I implore Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. That's it. That's all he says. He basically has told these two women, y'all need to fix this. You need to get right with each other. No specific instructions. No doctrinal cross-references that we can see here. Nothing. He said, y'all better take care of this before I get there. Don't make me come over there so I have to sort this out, is what Paul is saying. And then he says this, he, he says this, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The church family is to function as helpers. All, all of these people, of course, are spectators at this point. You, you've all seen and experienced this perhaps in your own life. Somebody in your family is mad at somebody else, and you don't want to say anything because you don't want to be seen as taking sides with somebody, right? We've all been there. 
You don't want to get in the middle of things and say, well, they need to work out amongst themselves. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is, he's addressing this. He says, true companion, whoever that is, anybody in the church that counts Paul as a companion, he addresses Clement, he addresses all the fellow workers, all of you around the church is to function as a reconciliation mechanism. If these two women cannot take care of the problem themselves and the entire church, is to come around them and say, look, this is your sister in Christ. This is your fellow laborer. This is somebody who you ought to be getting along with. If, if the church cannot get along with itself, how can you expect to get along with the outside world and bring the message of the gospel to them? You have churches suing each other. You have churches uh, bringing lawsuits against each other. You have Christians that are petty about certain things, dividing each other, leaving the church because of one thing or another that are not doctrinal things, just because they cannot get along with each other. The family, the church family is supposed to be just that. It is supposed to be a family. That's right. Hebrews 10 verse 24 says this, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We use Hebrews 10 25, uh, so many passages to this as, as a text. And it is a good text for, for, for me to use to encourage you to be present at the gathering every week at church. But it is not just for your own soul's sake and for being faithful to church that this verse is used. The verse before says this, the purpose of coming to church is not just to be in a place. The purpose of church is this. It's also to consider each other and to promote love and good works to each other. It is to exhort each other. It is to encourage each other in the Lord. The church needs each other. These women were just not random people in the church. He, he acknowledges that. These were not just people on the peripheral. What did you see that? He says, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. None of us are immune from getting into an argument with somebody. These were women that were probably faithful. They probably did everything in the church. They probably helped Paul, they helped the pastor, uh, whoever it was at this point, to do everything that needed to be done in this church. And yet they still had a disagreement amongst themselves. These were not new Christians. These were veteran, seasoned, faithful, laboring women. And yet they had a disagreement among themselves as well. Paul knew this, perhaps, with a more personal note, because as he knows, he lost a good friend as well, back in the book of Acts chapter 15. The book of Acts chapter 15 records the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, and Barnabas, one of his best friends, they argued so sharply about whether or not to take another man, whose name was John Mark, with them on another trip with them, that they parted ways because of it. John Mark had deserted them on a previous trip, and so Paul believed that John Mark would not be, uh, be a reliable companion on this next trip, and Barnabas thought, no, Paul, we've got to give him another chance. We need to take him. He's still young. He still needs to be mentored. Paul says, absolutely not. The work is too serious for us to, to count on not reliable people. And so they parted ways. I'm sure they reconciled at some point, because Paul and Barnabas uh, we see them later, but the, 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 the situation at hand here 
It's probably a little bit too familiar for Paul to let well enough alone. He says, you two need to be reconciled to each other. How do we do that? How do we cure it? Well, first, rejoice in the Lord. Why do we angry at somebody when we're rejoicing, isn't it? Yeah. Verse number four. He says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The first cure for a disunified church a divided church. The first cure is rejoicing in the Lord. This is a common theme throughout the book of Philippians. Uh, I've written down several different verses, so we don't have time to read through all of them that address this joyfulness that Paul is saying. But let me read just a few of them. He says this in verse 2 of chapter 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He says this in chapter 2. Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ. Jesus, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. All throughout this book. How do we keep a good attitude? Well, first thing, you need to start rejoicing in the Lord. The second thing is this, be gentle. Verse number five, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be known to everybody. And if the accountability of everyone is not enough, remember, the Lord is at hand. The Lord sees you. The Lord knows if you're being gentle or not. Gentleness is not uh, to be effeminate for those for those of us that might think that. It is just this. It means to be considerate. Be considerate. Chapter 2 of this same book in verse 3 says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Look let each of you look not on his, on his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Those of us that have been in church for a while know that there is kind of a power struggle sometimes in your older established churches. The, the family that has been there for a long time and the family that's brand new to the church, we know who the, where the chain of command is when it comes to influence in the flock, do we not? We know that there are some people in a church that tend to uh, gravitate toward or positions of power. They try to control everything. And Paul says the opposite of that is this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Don't be trying to vie for power in the body of Christ. Don't be trying to lift yourselves up so that everybody sees what you do and what your position is in the church. That is completely the opposite of what the example of Jesus that he gives us. Jesus was a meek person. Meekness. Gentleness. Of the fruit of the Spirit is what we're reminded of in this chapter here. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Be gentle. Do not try to overrun the church because of your personal ambition. That's exactly the way that you want to divide the church down. That's right. You will divide the church by not rejoicing. You will divide the church by not being gentle. 
And you will divide the church by not having a healthy prayer life. So sure number three, have a healthy prayer life. Look at verse number six. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The third cure for this unity is to have a healthy prayer life. You're having friction between you and somebody else. You're having an argument between you and somebody else. When was the last time that you prayed for them? When was the last time that you genuinely cared about them enough so that you prayed for them? Do you love that person enough to pray for them? We ought to take our troubles to the Lord. I wrote this down. We have an argument with somebody, and the first thing that you do is you 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 attack that person, or worse still, you go behind their back and you start attacking that person with somebody else, and so that they're complicit in your gossip now. But you know, the the one person that never gets told any of this is usually God. We tell everybody else about our problems, everybody else, and the one person that we should be telling that to never hears God. When was the last time you prayed for that person? When was the last time that you prayed that God would reconcile the relationship with you? If we only practice praying as much as we practice arguing, we just might have a different church. Come on, man. Thank God for the person that you are having an issue with. Pray for that person and then let God know that you want the situation to be resolved. That is the spiritual thing to do. Amen. That is a healthy Amen. thing to do. That is what a Christian ought to do. That's right. We ought to, number one, rejoice in the Lord. We ought to be gentle toward that person. And then we ought to take it to the Lord, have a healthy prayer life. That is how we cure disunity. We approach disunity with love. We cure disunity through gospel living, but finally, I want us to see this morning, we will prevent disunity through godly thinking. We will prevent disunity through godly thinking. Look at verse number eight. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The word finally in verse number eight, there's been a joke about this. We know that Paul is a Baptist preacher because it says finally, and then he goes on for another half chapter. Amen. <laughs> but the actual word for finally here, the Greek word means therefore or henceforth. And some translations uh, translate that as that as well. That this translation chose to go finally. But regardless, the meaning of the word is therefore, henceforth. In, in other words, in light of the things that I have just said, think about this. That's what he's saying. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, think on these things. There's a lot of things to think about in the world today, is there not? We're, we're flooded every single day with, with headlines on our smartphones, with uh, spam emails, with news articles that just assault uh, us every single day. Whatever wrong is happening in the world, if you tend to ingest all of those things and you do not ingest it in the Word of God, you will tend to have a negative outlook on the world. Yeah. If you absorb Fox News more than you absorb the Word of God, 
You're going to become a witness for Fox News. Come on, man. If you absorb the Word of God more than you absorb everything else around there, guess what? You're going to be a witness for Christ. Amen. You're going to be somebody that people will want to be around. You're going to become a Christian that is growing in their walk with the Lord. Come on. You're going to be a Christian that can model the right behavior. Verse number nine, he says this. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Meditate on the right things and model the right behavior. Meditate on the right things and model the right behavior. In other words, Paul was the very example of what he was telling this church to do. He says, y'all can follow my example. Whatever I have done, whatever you've learned from me, you go ahead and do those things too, and your problem is going to get solved really quick. In verse 27 of chapter 1, this is the famous verse of the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Can your conduct in your everyday life be said to be worthy of the gospel? Can, can we take last Thursday for you? And look at your life last Thursday and say, was there anything in this person's life that looked like the gospel? Was there anything yesterday, Saturday? Could we take all day Saturday? Was there one thing in your life Saturday that we could say of this person? Yep, they're a Christian. They lived the gospel. Only that kind of worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, so if I'm, but I'm there or not, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Amen. Together, in unity. We are all here for one mission, church. That is to get the gospel to a dying world. Come on. That is to get the gospel to the community of main ports. We can't do that if we're disunified. If we're divided, if we're arguing with each other about who does this, and what program should we have here, and what should we do about this over here, and that person said something ugly to me the other day. Okay, great. All those things are going to happen in that church. Whether you've been here for one day or for 10 years, those things are going to happen. But the mark of a mature church, a spiritually mature people of God will do this. They will resolve conflict they will first confront the issue with love. They will then uh, model the right thinking, and they will prevent. Uh, I'm sorry. They will. Uh, they will. They will cure disunity through godly living, and then they will prevent disunity from happening through godly thinking and modeling the right behavior. Are you unified? Is our church unified? Is there somebody here? Maybe they're not even here today. That you would say, yeah, I think I've got a little issue with that person. I think I, I can't get along with that person. Uh, that person just, I, I do not want to be around that person for very long. Who is it? Maybe it's somebody in your own life. Maybe it's somebody that doesn't even go to church. Maybe it's somebody that's in your family, you're a relative, somebody that lives out of state. I don't know who it is for you this morning, but there might be somebody in your life that you would say, <coughs> I don't want anything to do with that person. And you've never made any steps to reconcile. I'm not saying that everything will become glory after you make an attempt to reconcile. I am saying this. A Christian ought to at least make an attempt 
to reconcile with that person. You ought to be praying for that person. Whoever that person is, is somebody that Christ loved enough to die for. That's right. We as Christians, of all people, we ought to be people of reconciliation. Have we not received the greatest reconciliation anybody ever could? Have we not accepted the love and the sacrifice and the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has offered every single one of us this morning? Whether you've been saved for one week or whether you've been saved for 30 years, all of us are receivers of the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate grace, the ultimate reconciliation that nobody in history has ever been able to offer. Not before and not after. Certainly, we can make an attempt this morning to reconcile with another person. The story of American politics after JFK's assassination is this. There were two men in the Democratic Party that could not get along. Some of us may remember this thing in the news, but there was a little feud between Lyndon B. Johnson and Robert F. Kennedy, who had begun arguing with each other long before the election that saw President Nixon be elected. But Johnson had been actively outspoken against the Kennedy's father, Joe, and Robert had no interest in associating with Johnson. So the first time they met on RFK's first day in the Senate in 1953, RFK refused to shake LBJ's hand. And after JFK's assassination in 63, small incidents began to escalate into a huge behind-the-scenes animosity. Almost immediately after learning of JFK's death, LBJ called Robert from Air Force One, asking to know how the swearing-in process works. Kind of in your face, right? No condolences, no nothing. You just call them and ask, okay, how do I get this sort of thing When the plane landed in Washington, Robert gave the new president no acknowledgement whatsoever. Their supporters started playing the blame game and spreading theories about the other candidate. By the time the 1968 presidential race rolled around, Robert chose to run against LBJ. Much of the country was in turmoil over the Vietnam War, and Johnson decided that he could extend the feud no further. He dropped out of the risk, and RFK's subsequent assassination led the Democrats with no one behind. So had either of those men remained in the race, if they had reconciled their differences with each other, one of them may have been the next president of the United States, and we may have never have seen a Richard Nixon presidency. Y'all know how to make some presidents together. Petty differences amongst the very highest powers in life. They allowed a personal feud to get so in the way of their overarching mission that they gave the election to the other party. Now, what do you do with politics on either side is beside the point. The point that I make with the story is this. If you have a petty difference or a petty argument with somebody in your life, whether it's in this church or outside the church, and you let that fester and grow into a root of bitterness in your life, the overarching mission will be forfeit. We will not be a church going forward for God if we have arguments and divisions in our very minds. And so I challenge you this morning, take care of it. Whatever it is this morning, take care of it. As Paul says in Philippians 4, help these women or help these men.